Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, you can hear a conversation between the American writer Chris Krauss and culture editor of Mornbladet, Anne Farsetos. The conversation took place on August 20th, 2017. organized here yeah it's very well organized <clears throat> so thank you Lynn for the wonderful introduction and thank you to Chris for coming here to uh, talk about this book which is gaining so much influence even in this country and all across the world um, and I especially want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be at an event called obsessed with dick <laughs> as, a, as a literary critic, the titles of events that I'm invited to are normally not that juicy, so thank you very much. Uh, so, I want to get us right into the book. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's called I Love Dick, and it's a story uh, setting... This, this is a huge, like, I statement, very much like what I want. But then we open the book. Uh, it begins in the third person. Chris Krause, a 39-year-old film, experimental filmmaker, and it describes a dinner with Chris, her husband Silver, and Silver's friend Dick in the third person. Um, this Chris Krause in the book, do you prefer talking about her in the first person or the third person? Shall I address her? as her or you when we speak about Chris in the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I didn't plan to write a book. You know, everything that happens in the book really happened in life exactly as it's written. So I really did write those 200 letters to Dick before I knew that I was writing a book. Yeah. And, of course, those letters are written in the first person. And the whole thing went on and on and on, exactly as it's told. But when I realized that I'd written a book, um, and I went out to the desert and rented a cabin and decided, okay, I'm going to turn this into a book now, that's when I wrote the third-person narration. Mm -hmm. And that's when I turned the three of them into characters, Chris, Sylvia, and Dick. Um, so the character Chris really, is the character of the book. So no, if you're going to refer to the person in the book, you should refer to that person as Chris, the character. As Chris, the character, yeah. yeah. As so I mean, as soon as I knew it was a book, it's a character. Yeah. Um, and you really do describe them as characters, even as uh, prototypes or cliches in a way. She is a woman 39 years old, looking at turning 40, hungry for love and adventure. He is the cuckolded husband, in a way, but also they have a menage a trois. And then you have, like, the narcissistic male. Right, that's like the way a play begins. They have the character name and then the age and a short description. Exactly. Um, can you tell me a little bit... And they also speak about themselves as clichés in a kind of way, and they make a kind of a game or a story or a drama out of what happens. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit about the use of those clichés in the book or stereotypes? 
And say, could you say that prayer again? Yeah. Could you speak a little? Why, why did you want to tell the story, this love story, in in the in terms of these like cliches or stereotypes? Oh, why would I cast it in these stereotypes? Yeah. Yeah. Because it is a stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that happened to the whole experience was completely stereotypical, which is why it's a comedy. Which is why I thought it would be a good book. Yeah. <laughs> so you do see it as a comedy. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I knew it was a book, I knew it was a comedy. <laughs> and, and I wrote it that way. I mean, the, the third-person narration is setting it up as a comedy. Hmm. So, to get into the story and the comedy of it all, I think it would be great if you would read the beginning of the book for us. Okay, sure. I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Yeah. Scenes from a Marriage, December 3rd, 1994. Chris Krause, a 39 year old experimental filmmaker, and Silver Lotringer, a 56 year old college professor from New York, have dinner with Dick Blank, a friendly acquaintance of Silver's at a sushi bar in Pasadena. Dick is an English cultural critic who's recently relocated from Melbourne to LA. Chris and Silver have spent Silver's sabbatical at a cabin in Crestline a small town in the San Bernardino Mountains, some 90 minutes from Los Angeles. Since Silver begins teaching again in January, they will soon be returning to New York. Over dinner, the two men discussed recent trends in postmodern critical theory, and Chris, who's no intellectual, notices Dick making continual eye contact with her. Dick's attention makes her feel powerful, and when the check comes, she takes out her diner's club card. Please, she says, let me pay. The radio predicts snow on the San Bernardino Highway. Dick generously invites them to spend the night at his home in the Antelope Valley Desert, some 30 miles away. Chris wants to separate herself from her coupleness, so she sails Silver on the thrill of riding on Dick's magnificent vintage Thunderbird convertible. Silver, who doesn't know a T-bird from a hummingbird and doesn't care, agrees, bemused done. Dick gives her copious concern directions. Don't worry, she interrupts, flashing hair and smiles. I'll tell you. And she does. Slightly buzzed and keeping the accelerator of her pickup truck steady, she's reminded of a performance she did called Car Chase at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York when she was 23. She and her friend Liza Martin had tailed the steelily good-looking driver of a Porsche all the way through Connecticut on Highway 95. Finally, he pulled over to a rest stop, but when Liza and Chris got out, he drove off. The performance ended with Liza accidentally but really stabbing Chris's hand on stage with a kitchen knife. Blood flowed, and everyone found Liza dazzlingly sexy and dangerous and beautiful. Liza, belly popping out of a fuzzy midriff top, fishnet legs tearing up against her green vinyl miniskirt as she rocked back to show her crotch, looked like the cheapest kind of whore. A star is born. No one at the show that night had found Chris's pale, anemic looks and piercing gaze remotely endearing. Could anyone? It was a question that had temporarily been shelved. But now it was a whole new world. The request line on 92.3, the beat was thumping post-riot Los Angeles, a city strong on fiber optic nerves. 
Dick's Thunderbird was always somewhere in her line of sight, the two vehicles strung invisibly together across the concrete riverbed of highway like John Dunn's eyeballs. And this time, Chris was alone. Back at Dick's, the night unfolds like the boozy Christmas Eve in Eric Romer's film, My Night at Mods. Chris notices that Dick is flirting with her, his vast intelligence straining beyond the promo rhetoric and words to evince some essential loneliness that only she and he can share. Chris giddily responds. At 2 a.m., Dick plays them a video of himself dressed as Johnny Cash, commissioned by English public, public television. He's talking about earthquakes and upheaval and his restless longing for a place called home. Chris's response to Dick's video, though she does not articulate it at the time, is complex. As an artist, she finds Dick's work hopelessly naive, yet she's a lover of certain kinds of bad art, art which offers a transparency into the hopes and desires of the person who made it. Bad art makes the viewer much more active. Years later, Chris would realize that her fondness for bad art is exactly like Jane Eyre's attraction to Rochester, a mean <laughs> horse-faced junkie. Bad character invites invention. But Chris keeps these thoughts to herself. Because she does not express herself in theoretical language, no one expects too much from her. And she's used to tripping out on layers of complexity and total silence. Chris's unarticulated double flip on Dick's video draws her even closer to him. She dreams about him all night long. But when Chris and Sylvia wake up on the sofa bed the next morning, Dick is gone. December 4th, 1994, 10 a.m. Silver and Chris leave Dick's house, reluctantly alone that morning. Chris rises to the challenge of extemporizing the thank you note, which must be left behind. She and Silver have breakfast at the Antelope Valley IHOP. Because they are no longer having sex, the two maintain their intimacy via deconstruction. That is, they tell each other everything. Chris tells Sevier how she believes that she and Dick have just experienced a conceptual fuck. His disappearance in the morning clinches it and invests it with a subcultural subtext she and Dick both share. She's reminded of all the fuzzy one-time fucks she's had with men who are out the door before her eyes are open. She recites a poem by Barbara Barg on the subject to Sylvia. What do you do with a Kerouac but go back and back to the sack with Jack? How do you know when Jack has come? You look on your pillow and Jack is gone. <laughs> and then there was the message on Dick's answer phone. When they came into the house, Dick took his coat off, poured them drinks and hit the play button. The voice of a very young, very Californian woman came on. Hi, Dick, this is Kyla. Dick, I, I'm sorry to keep calling you at home and now I've got your answering machine and I, I just wanted to say I'm sorry how things didn't work out the other night and I know it's not your fault, but I guess all I really wanted to say was just thank you for being such a nice person. <laughs> now I'm totally embarrassed, Dick mumbled charmingly, opening the vodka. Dick is 46 years old. Does this message mean he's lost? And if Dick is lost... Could he be saved by entering a conceptual romance with Chris? Was the conceptual fuck merely the first step? For the next few hours, Sylvia and Chris discuss this. Thank you.
Thanks. Yeah, it's a great start. And uh, as we can hear, even from the beginning, when she falls in love with Dick or is obsessed with him, she's thinking about it as a kind of uh, art form, a conceptual fuck, uh, is what right. she's thinking about. Um, so the idea of making an art form out of this seems to have come very early on in the story? Well, the, I mean, in, in, there were a couple of waves of that. You know, um, the first iteration of it, the letters, I think even in the letters, the two of them suggest that maybe the whole thing can be treated as a kind of high game, mm. right? A kind of performance that they're all doing together. And this is even when there's a real-life relationship going on and even when she's about to spend the night with him and afterwards. But then the second wave of that kind of distancing or removal came when I knew that it was going to be a book. Mm. And I wrote the narration in a certain way, you know, in a very comic tone, sort of seeing it as a kind of postmodern restoration comedy of manners. <laughs> and at one point, she says that by writing Dick, she is offering her life as a case study. It seems yeah. almost scientific to the way to use your own life and your own experiences in this way. Well, I love case studies. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, you could say that that's what a novel is, right? Mm. You know, um, I'm a co-editor of the Independent Press Semiotext, and we publish books in philosophy, and we also publish books in fiction. And I often feel like the fiction books are just turning the other side of the philosophy text. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what does a novel do except show how large ideas in the world play out in people's lives. Mm. And so that means that every novel is a case study. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I very easily kind of glommed on to that idea. And, you know, when I was reading these case studies, when I was doing the Guatemala stuff, I was reading case studies about the Guatemalan Civil War. And the beauty of a case study is you get to know one small situation very, very well. And you can see it as a paradigm for the larger situation. You know, I don't think any of us can ever grasp the whole. It's too complex and there's too much to it. So if you bring it down to a small life scale level of a case study, then it becomes very resonant and poetic and beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's always the large within the small animating each other. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned Guatemala there, that's because Dick, now Chris reads uh, books about Guatemala, is very involved in the stories going on there. And then she thinks about her own writing and art. And she says, as an American, maybe the only thing I have to offer is my own specificity. Uh, and that's why she should make her life a case study. Uh, but what is it the case study of then? What, what is the case? It, it, the case study is the case study of love. It's a case study of heterosexuality. In Oh, what's it a case study of? Yeah. Well, it's a case... I mean, it's on, on several levels, okay? It's a case study of these three people in this situation at that moment in time. Um, but the writer of the book, Chris, is also undertaking a case study of herself because her encounter with Dick somehow... It's like a um, triggering event, you know. It unlocks something about her whole past. Dick somehow represents the kind of cowboy loner type of bad boyfriend that she'd always been attracted to, 
before she got together with Sylvain. You know, he's, he's the archetype of the bad boyfriend. And so by having this kind of midlife infatuation with Dick, she gets to revisit her adolescent self, falling for the bad boyfriend over and over again, mm. and to revisit it, you know, from that vantage point of time and age is to study it. Mm. You know, so she has this wonderful opportunity as she's about to turn 40 to examine her experience as a very young woman, you know, as a teenager. And she sets herself a very difficult task. And she sets herself this task the day before she turns 40. She says, before I'm 40, I'm going to solve the problem of heterosexuality. <laughs> so uh, that's not a small task, especially in one day. But what exactly is uh, the problem of heterosexuality? Uh, well, there are a lot of problems <laughs> of heterosexuality. And they still haven't been solved. They haven't been solved. <laughs> she no, doesn't they solve haven't them. been solved. <laughs> but um, I think the ones that she's addressing here are, you know, to what degree does a woman at that moment need to erase herself and transform herself in order to become appealing to a heterosexual man? You know, to what degree are we willing to betray ourselves to get what we think we want? And it seems then that women have to betray themselves more or in a, more, in, a, in a different way than men to get what they want. Yes. I think that I continue trying to answer the question in later writings. Yeah. Um, in Aliens and Anorexia and in Video Green, um, I continue to write about heterosexuality, but this time really seeing it as a theatrical play. Mm. And one of the problems is also being a female artist. Uh, in the book, we meet Chris on many, many occasions where she is just a plus one for Silver, who is a relatively successful philosopher. And we meet other women who are also often described as plus ones instead of being described as... Um, yes, the artists I that know they are. the whole subculture of plus ones. Yeah, the subculture and of plus ones. And it's profoundly uncomfortable for the person. For the person, yeah. I mean, I've got to say, though, that the art world is a very snobby place. Mm. And it's not purely a gender question. I think the art world, more than any other... You know, you go to a, a gathering of business people, they're very nice to the spouse and the mm. partner, mm. you know? Um, in the art world, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you show up with a partner who they don't know as someone you know, significant in the art world, mm. and um, it's as if the person doesn't exist. Mm. I mean, my present partner, he's, he's a civilian, and uh, he doesn't like coming with me to art events because he'll talk to someone, and they'll talk to me. Yeah. He'll ask someone a question, and they'll look at me. Um, the art world, they're very, um, it's very, it's very Asperger's. I mean, they really aren't <laughs> good at dealing with people who don't share their values and their language. Mm. Because an interesting thing about the book is that it seems to be also a fact that people in the art world or in the literary world love this book uh, and have taken it to, to heart also as a kind of a description of those environments and the norms and habits of, of the art world. Can it also be seen as a case study or an anthropological study of the art world? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I do that in this book, and then I went on to do that further in other books. Yeah. 
Yeah, anthropology, I think, is like it's the closest cousin to writing fiction. Hmm. Yeah, because it seems to be almost like a field study. You can see you can see, see Chris as the center of a network, and then you have all of these other people <laughs> described on the map of the art world there. It's true. And I think the book that I just finished, The Biography of Kathy Acker, that's also a kind of field study of Kathy, the different eras that Kathy Acker moved through. Mm -hmm. The 70s and 80s in New York, the 80s in London, San Francisco in the 90s. In all of those cases, I'm trying, I mean, I'm following Kathy as a figure. She's the subject of the book, but I'm really diffusing the focus to a great extent to try and bring other people into the story and to describe the cultural atmosphere, the community that she was a part of. Mm. You know, that's always art history. And I talk about this in I Love Dick, too. Art history is always doing this. They're always trying to create the singular hero, the star. It's as if the artist can't exist without erasing 10 other artists who are around them. Mm. And I hate that, of course. I mean, every, any artist would hate that because, you know, you see yourself being erased, you see your friends, the people you care about being erased. So a lot of my work as a writer and also with semiotext has been to try and bring more of the people into the picture. Mm. And the people in the picture, there are many, many names in the book of uh, characters who only appear one or two times. Are they all real? They're, they're all real people, right? Yeah, those are yeah. all real people, real artists. Yeah, yeah. The scruple that I followed in the book was if it was a person who had any kind of art or public career, I would name them by name. Mm. And if it was like another person, the only time I would change the name is if I was going to say something really unpleasant about the person, <laughs> and it wasn't about their artwork. Yeah. <laughs> In that case, I would change the name. But something unpleasant about the artwork would just be a piece of art Yeah, criticism. no, if they're an yeah. artist, you can say what yeah. you want about the art, yeah. right? <laughs> And one of the things that is described in the real way is the way that some women artists... Uh, you, you have loads of descriptions of men sitting around the table and talking, and the women hardly saying anything or being asked anything. One particularly strong one is uh, it's uh, at the party with... Uh, I think it's Negri and Hart, uh, yes. and they talk about uh, making a TV show in Germany about um, the state of the left, and they have only four men there, four men in their 50s who are all alike, and then you, you, you say, what about Crystal Wolf? She's starting a left-wing party, and they say, she's not an intellectual. Right. Yeah. Right. So do you think that the book is has something like a more general statement about uh, how women are treated in the arts world or in the cultural world? Yeah, um, that felt very, very important at the time I was writing it. You know, I don't know that that problem persists, that men have such a monopoly on the culture industry. As they, I mean, happily, that's one of the things that has changed a lot hmm. in 20 years. I really can't see that happening, you know, for um, serious... A-list intellectuals, all men sitting around talking to the total exclusion of women, and you know, and ridiculing a prominent woman. Mm. I really don't see that happening anymore. So you do think something has happened yes, since absolutely. you wrote the book? I mean, yeah. do the efforts of tens of thousands of women. This has changed. Mm. Not everything has changed. I mean, and I think that the 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 appeal of the book all these years later 
is because not everything has changed. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the privacy issue is still as sensitive as it was in the late 90s. Mm. Um, but the presence of women in public life is much better. Mm. And when you say the privacy issue, uh, are you thinking about the fact that you use um, real people and that Dick is also a real person? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, why people find that shocking, I don't know. No. I don't know. <laughs> I, and I think it's a limited cultural memory. Um, in the Kathy Acker book, in her 1983 novel, Great Expectations, she writes letters to a series of her former lovers and prominent people, former lovers including Silvere, Peter Gordon, prominent people including Susan Sontag, and they're named. And she says really personal things about them. And they're hilarious. And nobody blinked, hmm. you know? Um, and that book came out in, what, 83? And like by 97, people are so sensitive about the privacy thing, and even more so now. Um, I don't know if people in Norway followed at all this kind of scandal. Um, HTML giant, if people follow the alt-lit movement, the American alt-lit movement at all here, um, there's a writer, Stephen Troll, who calls himself Janie Smith after the Kathiaka character. In 2013, he published a list on HTML Giant called Writers I'd Like to Fuck Slash Be Fucked By. <laughs> and he was drummed off of HTML Giant. Like, they completely shut him down. They accused him of rape, basically. And, I mean, wow, something has really seriously changed here. Hmm. So this debate about living models and privacy is very strong in this country right now, uh, at this moment, um, surrounding uh, a couple of novels. Uh, we won't get into that, but people are interested in the use of um, living models and the ethics of, of doing that, of course. Right. I mean, people have this membrane now of personal space around them for whatever reason that they feel has to remain sacrosanct. Mm. You know, it's the, the idea that being put on somebody's list is a violation, I, it's so hard for me to fathom. I mean, I would be flattered. So you would be flattered if you... Uh... <laughs> If someone uh, wrote a book called uh, um, I Love Chris and you were every all of your pri private memories and experiences were described from the other point of view, you yeah. would be fine with it? Yeah. I mean, to be a writer or an artist is to assert yourself as a public figure. And once you do that, people can say whatever they want. Yeah, but does that also go for people who know artists or are surrounded by artists or have relationships to artists? Yeah. It does? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't see... I mean, if, if it's someone who's not a public person at all, maybe that's another thing. But as, as soon as you put work out, you know, under your name, then you're kind of character. Yeah. You know? Don't so, you agree? Um, it's not a question of what I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as so we, you can't as, take it that seriously. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. You know, people can say what they want. You can't take it that seriously. Yeah. But Dick Hebdige, who is the the person, the critic that this book is based on, didn't agree with that. Of course, he 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 does not like 
uh, being used in this way. Have you, in hindsight, do you have any like regrets about how you portrayed him or any other people, or do you see it differently now than when you wrote the book, or has anything happened there since no. the book was out? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything unpleasant about him, really. Um, I didn't, I had a scruple when I wrote the book that I would, uh, and I, you know, in every version of the book, I never revealed his surname. I changed his nationality. I changed his physical description. I never mentioned the titles of his books. And even the things that I said about this fictitious character, none of it was information that he hadn't already said about himself in his own writing. Mm. So it was a character basically created from, his, from Dick Tavidich's own writing. Hmm. So, no, I didn't disclose anything that was kind of personal or private information. Hmm. All this stuff about, you know, the whole chapter about schizophrenia, that was kind of a lateral way of speaking about experiences he'd had without addressing them to his experience. So, no, I mean, he would never have been known if he didn't out himself by, you know, wanting to speak against the book Yes, about because it was him who said that right. he was. You know, there was this New York magazine thing yeah. that came out when the book was first published, and when they called him to comment, he could have said, what are you talking about? That's not me. Nothing to do with me. Uh, end of story. Hmm. But he had a really good name, because you've got this wonderful title, I Love Dick, uh, which is such a strong title, and it has That's like... That's the only reason. I mean, yeah. as soon as I thought of the title, how could I change it? Yeah. How could I go back <laughs> after that? <laughs> because would it have worked to call a book I Love David or... Uh, no, not I Love George? Work. It wouldn't, no. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit? The title is, is funny in many ways because, of course, it's romantic in one way, and, it, and the story is also romantic. I mean, she falls in love. Uh, there's not much irony there in the, uh, in the fact that she falls in love, but it's also pornographic, of course, and it's a conceptual title. We think about T-shirts with I Love New York or whatever. Uh, can you say a little bit about your thoughts on the title? Say the question again. Can, can you? What were the thoughts behind the title for you? Oh well, I mean, I th I think at some point in one of the letters, I talk about how um, oh let's publish these letters and call them I love Dick in the school magazine, and I can be like a negative role model for all the students. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Silvera and I, that was how we kind of kept our relationship going all those years, was we would just entertain <laughs> each other by having these incredibly kind of fabulous and hyperbolic, you know, flights of fancy and dialogues. Mm. You know, we were just talking, talking, talking all the time, amusing and entertaining each other. Mm. So that kind of came out to amuse Silvera, and we had a good laugh about it. And, uh, and then it was like in the letter, it was in the book. Why would I not call the book that? Mm. And Silver encouraged me to do that. He said, don't change the title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, this novel, it's sometimes called a novel. It's also been called a theoretical fiction or a conceptual work of art or autofiction. On the back of it, it says, blurring the lines of fiction, essay, and memoir. Uh, how do you like to describe the work? What words do you use to describe the genre of it? Um, I, don't, I don't agree with that. 
Um, I would just call it a novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're going to say memoir if they're going to say it, but I don't agree with it. You don't agree that it can mm-hmm. be read, uh, has anything to do with a God, memoir? God, no. no. I mean, maybe someday I'll write a memoir, but I never have. Yeah. I never have. I mean, to me, and and all of the books that we published in the Native Agents series, they're all first-person female fiction writing, but the whole point is they're not memoirs. I mean, the purpose of a memoir is to tell your own story, Right. I don't feel like that's what I'm doing in my books at all. I'm not trying to. T- I'm trying to tell a lot of different stories, but not my story in mm-hmm. particular. Um, this came up actually over the weekend. I was at the um, Malbayan Festival in Moss for the last few days, and there was this wonderful poet. Um, maybe you know her work, Hiromi uh, Ito. Um, she and she and I did an event together, and. She said when we were talking afterwards that this whole question of autofiction and memoir, it's a total non-issue in Japan. They've had autofiction, you know, quote-unquote, first-person novel writing for at least 100 years. And people understand that when the writer says I, it's a way of saying we. You know, you're saying I, but by saying I, you're speaking for the we. Hmm. That's very interesting that there are different uses of I in different cultures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that that's a kind of poetic eye. Eileen Miles, the writer, has talked about that too, and I think the poet Alice Notley has talked about that too. And they have different metaphors for it, like the eye being the rudder of a ship that steers the story. It's not a personal eye. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and Suzanne Christensen and I were talking about this in the dialogue that we did too, and it shares a lot with uh, the ideas of the new narrative writers, mm. um, whose work is coming much more to the front now. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of writers around San Francisco who were doing exactly this kind of work, first-person fiction, first-person poetry, but not introspective. So you can use the first person to, to do a case study, as you would say. Yeah. yeah. Well, a first person that's, like, that's examining the world. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, here's the weird thing, is that when women do that, right, when women use the first person, and this is something that sheds a light on the persistence of sexism, is there's a difference between a female eye and a male eye. And people still think that there's something maybe so dirty and contaminated about female experience that it could only be a confession. Mm. I mean... And that doesn't seem to have changed then. That hasn't changed since you wrote the book. No, that hasn't changed. I mean, it's it's changing, and I think it's just almost over the hump of like having changed. And thanks to the work of so many other writers whose work has come out in the last decade, Sheila Hetty and Emily Gould, and you know a bunch of other women, Joanna Walsh, Olivia Lang, um, tons of younger women now who are working in the same territory. And so many of the women uh, artists and writers that you mentioned now have been inspired by uh, I Love Dick uh, specifically. Uh, Did you ever expect the book to come back uh, 10 years after the fact? I never did, no. And can you tell us a little bit what happened with it the first time? How was the response to it the first time in 97? 
Well, I mean, it makes a better story to say that the book was completely ignored or completely villainized the first time, but that's not really true. Um, you know, it was it was read. You know, it, it wasn't terrible. What happened? It was exactly what I expected. It, it circulated in the art world, and the people who mattered the most to me at that time read the book and talked about it. And yeah, there were some people who ridiculed it, but then there were even more people who defended it. Mm. And at that time, I was so ready for that to happen. You know, when people when when there was a, a really ridiculously offensive review that was published in Art Forum that called the book, you know, it described it as a book not so much written as secreted. Mm. I like, great, <laughs> bring it on. You know, and then three women can write letters to Art Forum contesting that, and then the book gets more space. Mm. I was really ready for the book to be a public event mm. and not to take it personally. And the more controversy it could generate, the better. But, I mean, I was surprised, actually, that be, when I was talking about Hannah Wilkie in the book, these are things that happened already 20 years ago by the time the book was published, you know? That her, her exhibition would be shut down by Klaus Oldenburg because it, in, quote, invaded his privacy. I couldn't believe that in 1997 people were still having these same issues about privacy and about the use of the first person in female experience. But yes, I mean, if the book was meant to be a case study, then let it be a case study all the way through, mm. including its reception. Mm. And why do you think uh, it happened in 2006 in such a big way? What has happened? Well, younger women started to read the book, and instead of writing about it in zines, they were writing about it in their blogs. And these blogs had a much bigger readership than the zines had. Mm. You know, and it was much more cross-cultural. It wasn't just like women in grad school or art school mm. who read the blogs. It was like a lot, the blo I mean, it was a much more democratic readership, I think, in the earlier iteration of the internet. Mm. You know, a lot of different women from different kind of geographic places and, and cultural places were picking up on it. And so they discovered the book through these other writers, through the bloggers. Ariana Raines blogged about it, and Emily Gould, and um, Jackie Wang, um, all these really brilliant younger women who went on to become published writers. They blogged about it, and all their followers picked up on it. Mm. You know, and then it's like in the, in the more recent years, it's been Instagrammed by, you know, more mainstream people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the book in the book you also there are many critical passages in the book many essays in the book essays of art criticism like on Hanna Wilke as you say and there are also other critical passages where you discuss the form of the book itself um, and in one of them it's described also as a reaction to a sort of standard uh, male first person novel uh, can you say a little bit about that? That it's a reaction yeah. to the standard yeah. first-person yeah. novel? Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that. It's uh, In the book, you describe how uh, the um, typical first-person first male novel has uh, the male as the center, but all of the other uh, bi-characters are fictionalized, the women, like Sophie That's Kai right. in Paul Auster's uh, novel. Well, or maybe they're given character names... But everybody who knows those people knows who they are. 
and you know, and then the character is treated in a very flattering and an unflattering and unfair way, and the person has no recourse because she's been given a fake name. Yeah. So that seems worse than using the person's real name because if you use real names, you have to think hard about what you're saying and exercise some kind of scruple and fairness. Mm. If you just change the person's name but everybody knows who she is, I mean, that's really slimy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that ha- that's happened to friends of mine. I mean, being kind of in the art and literary world, I have friends who've ended up in their ex-boyfriend's books you know, in really creepy and embarrassing ways that kind of ruin their lives, but not maybe not forever, but for a long, for a long time. Mm. And of course, this book is so rich in references to art, culture, and literature throughout the centuries. You refer to uh, Madame Bovary. Silver describes himself as a Charles Bovary, and Chris as Emma. Uh, the woman who takes a lover just to get away from her boring life. And you refer to uh, the classic letter novel, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, and them as libertines, of course. Um, What were the models that you were most inspired by yourself in creating this form? It's funny. I know you're not going to believe this, but actually one of my writing models was Henry James. Yeah. Um, there's some very long sentences, right? And I'm a huge fan of Henry James's, and I love the way the sentence moves through different realms of experience trying to figure out what he means. Hmm. You know, he's not being unnecessarily complicated. He's complicated because the situation is complicated, and he's being as clear as he can. So I was very... I felt like in terms of prose style... I was writing in the shadow a bit of Henry James. Wow. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you write in different uh, genres. Uh, and now, yes, you said you have uh, a book about Kathy Acker coming out. Uh, is it a traditional biography? I don't think so. I wouldn't think you would write anything traditional. Yeah, it's a biography, but it's not a conventional biography. I tried to make it as much like a novel as I could. I mean, it's definitely not one of those big, fat, cradle-to-grave, you know, she was born on X date and her parents had X professions and her grandparents came from law. I mean, Mm -hmm. those things come into the story as they need to. But I try and really situate Acker um, in time as she was inventing herself as a writer. Mm. And I get very close to her. I didn't really know Kathy. We knew people in common, We were in some of the same rooms, some of the same times, but we were never friends, and we didn't know each other. Um, But I really felt that I was getting very close to her by doing a close reading of her books and her notebooks. It was amazing to discover some of her early diaries from her early 20s, not in her own archives, but she had crushes on people. She had a crush on the writer Jerome Rothenberg, and he kept everything. And... It was actually in Jerome Rothenberg's archive that I found all this amazing early Kathy stuff that nobody had found before. Mm. And so you use uh, those diaries in the biography? They're yeah. an important material, I would assume? 
Yeah, yeah. So it was like going to other people's archives that I dug out correspondence and diaries of her from her 20s that people didn't even know about before. So the trick is don't look in the person's archives because, like, it's not there. <laughs> it's more in, and I guess this is going to disappear now that everything is electronic, mm. but so much of Kathy's career was pre-electronic. You know, if you figure out who the friends and lovers were, you look at their archives because what they write to the different people, who their fr- what they write to their friends and lovers, is so telling. Mm. Of course, and you write in many different genres. The essay is another genre that you excel in. And I believe that you have a book uh, just out in Norwegian now that you have made just for uh, a Norwegian publishing house that doesn't exist anywhere else. Yes, Um, it's called Kelly Lake Story and Other Stories. And House of Foundation in Moss invited me to put together a book, um, you know, on the occasion of the festival. Um, so I gathered together some essays I've been working on in the last five years that have to do with groups of people I've gotten to know who are doing art projects outside of the major international centers in northern Baja, in Mexicali, in uh, in northern Mexico near the Canadian border. Um, I got to uh, this other group called Tiny Creatures in Los Angeles who were really not part of the art world. All of these case studies of groups who are making very serious work outside of the art world mainstream. Hmm. So I think we have uh, possibly used all the time that we have, uh, but it's so great that you have taken time to come here. Uh, and you, this is not the first time you're in Norway, you have been here before. And it's so wonderful that you are putting this book together just for a Norwegian audience as well. So I want to thank you very much for coming here. And I think uh, this book and the books that you put out will keep inspiring people here. And uh, to the audience, if you want more Dick, you have to stick around for the whole (laughs) TV series. And uh, give a warm applause to Chris Grant. And I thank you, Thank you very much. You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Literaturhuset. Music by Apotek.